We must defend our religious institution at all costs, and if that means executing the Son of God, we will do it. When we see somebody who starts to exert social pressure on others to get them to conform or to comply, that person needs to be taken aside as though we found them with a room full of hookers. <laughs> All right, if Kent were here, what would he say? What would he say? Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. Where did we leave off last week? Oh, last week, we were talking about how the gospel is the perennial source of guidance and some other religious words. So, basically, we were saying the gospel, not the Bible, is our guide. Mm-hmm. Which is a theme we've been, I think, hitting on for a while in our podcast, sure. off and on, that there's a sense that there's... There is a gospel message that is deeper and transcends just the written word or the text of the Bible that we've been handed down, but a lot of us have been brought up in a tradition or have kind of just by osmosis gotten this sense that if we just read the Bible, yeah. we're going to get all the direction, all the answers that we need for life, and then we'll know what to do to be good Christians. So the frustration that I think the evangelical church has progressively found itself in many believers that are going through this deconstruction season right now is that, you know what, there's not a lot of great answers in the Bible. <laughs> it seems like there, the Bible does point to a lot of things that are really important and, and gives us some direction, but it's pointing us to something rather than just giving us the answers. I I think that when you get to Galatians 5, and he talks about the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, and he talks about wrath and lust and all these things, and he ends that list with, and such like, which that ellipsis at the end, I, I think is very telling about the purpose of the New Testament. It's not to give us the definitive, complete, and final word on everything. And yet, what do we say? The Bible is the final standard for all matters in faith and life. That's, mm-hmm. I don't know how many places you're going to find that. Probably in almost every church, their faith statement is going to say something like that. But Paul seems to have thought that it's the beginning. It's some ideas. It's of how we might process the gospel. But it is not the definitive word. The gospel is the definitive word, and yet the gospel is this dynamic. You think about in James, where, where James talks about, he, he says, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus with respected persons. And then he talks about how they were showing favoritism toward the wealthy and the influential. They were despising those who were impoverished. And James is saying, if you try to judge people, you become judges with evil intent. You've become corrupt judges because it just so happens that these people that you show favoritism toward can do things for you. (laughs) And and, and he's saying, look, you can either be judges or you can be a person of mercy, but you can't be both. And if you want to be a judge, you better be ready to be judged. And this system of judgment and law is never going to end. You're always going to find a way that somebody is violating it. Nobody's going to find themselves in perfect conformity. And it's a lose-lose proposition because if you violate one part, you violated the whole thing. But but then he says, if you keep the royal law, that is love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. 
He also calls it the perfect law of liberty. How can a law bring liberty? <laughs> and, and this royal law, what law are royals under? They're above the law, aren't they? But there's something about royals that we expect. We expect them to be noble. At least that's what they did. I don't know if we expect them to be noble or not anymore. We may expect them to be entitled and overfed. But at any rate, there's this assumption that if somebody is at that echelon, they're above the law, that they have within themselves the kind of nobility that they wouldn't need to be regulated like lowlifes like the rest of us. And he's saying, you have been elevated, all of you, even that guy that you're making to sit on the floor has been elevated. And that approach to life, it is the perfect law of liberty. It, it sets people free and it never needs update, amending, any of that. We know that in the United States, our legal system is constantly expanding so that people have to have massive degrees. They have to specialize in law just because trying to dictate the details of human life is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And yet James seemed to understand that, that we had been given a royal law, a perfect law, one that gives liberty and one that never needs updating, and that is simply love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. Thinking about that, it's a good time. We just celebrated, for those of you that celebrate the Christian calendar, Ascension. And with that is the this message that we have also been raised with Christ, not just from the dead in a spiritual sense, but that we have been raised up into that royal position mm. with Christ as he ascended. When he ascended in Acts, he wasn't just going up to heaven. He was entering the throne room and ascending to the throne as Lord and King. And so he's also brought us into that same position, just like people used to expect that the kings have this level of nobility and responsibility for the people that they've been giving a position over, I, I think that comes with us. We right. inherit that along with Jesus, that we have a responsibility that comes with that position. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we've been raised with him, but we've also been seated at the right hand of God with him. And there's certainly a lot to unpack there, but it gets back to the gospel mm -hmm. that these tenets of the gospel that he died for our sins he rose on the third day he's ascended he's reigning on high he's coming back that's it there you go now everything you ever need to know but plumbing the depths of that is what we'll spend the rest of our life on and that's what discipleship consists of is applying that taking up our cross not just the fact that he was crucified and we celebrate that but that there's a cross for each of us that each of us have an iteration of his experience waiting for us that God has orchestrated and we can choose to take it up. But if we do, we will have to do it in faith because that's the only way anybody's going to take up a cross because we know where it leads. And so we're being called to a faith like his. We're being called to a love like his by his experience, by virtue of entering it. And that enterprise will guide us to become like him and make us those moral people that I think everybody wishes they were or perhaps already <laughs> think they are. We were having coffee earlier this morning and talking about how Paul would, in his, his travels throughout Asia and Europe, he would go to some places for just a few weeks. Right. And he would proclaim this gospel message to people for a few weeks. And then when he felt like they they had received it and they got it, he, he would leave and feel like that they were in good hands. Yeah. And, and how different that is 
how we like to structure and keep things under a pattern or control or institutionalize things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and Paul, it, when he's writing to the Galatians, what's interesting is that they had come under the tutelage of probably people who had been worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Abraham for centuries, Jewish people who were trying to convince them they needed to become full Jews by being circumcised and all that. Paul, actually, when he writes to them, he says, look, I'm trying to become like you. And so here's Paul. He was raised in a rabbinic school. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin by his own account. He was flawless or blameless in his observance of the law. And he's writing to these people who were from this Gaelic region, who were backwater rednecks. They really had no place or respect that the Greeks considered them barbarians and the Jews considered them pagans. And and here are these people who Paul at one point in Galatians says, and when I was there, you didn't even hurt me. It's just like bad neighborhood. And yet he's saying, I, I'm trying to become like you. When I was there, Paul says that he was there because he was ill. And I think that he had a condition with his eyes. He says, when I was there, you welcomed me. You received me as though I was an angel of God. And, and he says, if you could have, you would have ripped out your own eyes and given them to me. That somehow that the gospel had inspired a degree of love in these people that Paul was still aspiring to match. I'm saying overnight, you became more loving than even I am today. That's the power of the gospel. That's the thing we should live by. Whether somebody is circumcised or not made very little difference for Paul when he saw this kind of of outpouring of genuine, active love. Yeah, and that's the sign that the gospel is truly at work, is not, how much do we know about the Bible? Have we memorized, you know, can we read it in the original languages? Can we read it all? It was this sense that he knew that they had receive the gospel when this this love that can only come from the gospel began to display itself in their life and how they would treat each other and treat other people. And then he says, you were running well. Who has cut in on you? And so here were these people who had a lot more knowledge, a lot more experience. They were coming to say, hey, you guys are full of enthusiasm, but now let us teach you the right way. And Paul's saying, these people cut you off at the pass. You were making progress, and your progress has been ground to a halt. Wait, who are these people? <laughs> right, and, and Paul didn't want to be that person either. He could have been. He chose not to be that person. He, like he says to the Corinthians, he was there 18 months, and he says, I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and, and him crucified. And so there's this overflow of knowledge and advice and stuff that can supplant the gospel if it's presented in the wrong way. Yeah. So what, what does that look like? Because I, I think that's the tension that we all live with. The, the Galatians had a very specific example of that in the Judaizers and some of those right. people that were cutting in on their faith. But that same dynamic seems to manifest itself over and over again, even in our times. Yeah, I think it it happens as people aspire to be like other people. Say you're baptized and you're in a church and you're a young adult and you see these people who are older, they're married and they have kids and they seem like they've got it together. And you you start to think, maybe I want to be like them. And, And then you start to find out what they do and you try to reproduce it. And all of a sudden your focus is completely off of, Jesus, and it's on how you're not like them yet. A lot of the 
aspirations that you have require things to take place in your life that are outside of your control. So now you're crying out to God to bring you the right spouse. You're crying out to God to give you the right job. And maybe he doesn't care about any of that. Maybe that's not what he saved you for. But now you're all twisted up over something that, frankly, isn't Jesus at all. But we start to fall in love with uh, a particular expression of Jesus rather than with him himself. And the beauty of the gospel is that it is small enough to become this germ, this seed. And it has to start as that in us, and we have to respond to that germ and not to a full-flowered plant in somebody else. And I grieve when I see pictures of pastor training in Africa, and everyone is sitting there with a white button-down shirt and a tie and slacks. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? How did this happen? What if we taught them? But I we, don't even like wearing those clothes. Right, right. <laughs> but we bring people prefabricated experiences. We bring them expectations, whether we want to or not. And people are very ready to adopt that. I, I don't know how many people have come to me and said, just tell me the, the steps. Just give me the ABCs of this so that I can do it correctly. But that is antithetical to faith. Faith requires this unknowing, this uncertainty, this moment-to-moment attentiveness that a lot of us would just as soon be done with and not have to worry about. We just want to know we're doing it right. We want to know all of our boxes have been checked and so we can get on with our own agenda, I'm afraid. And so that's how it begins to fall apart is when we find some sort of alternative to faith because faith is difficult yeah that kind of faith requires a daily discipline not so much a discipline of like reading the bible or praying those are helpful things to help grow us but a constant wrestling (laughs) yeah with the dynamic of what does it mean to truly know and follow our lord's example in all these ways and what he's commanded us to do one thing i wanted to get to today is some recent stuff in the news regarding the southern baptist convention and uh, a report that came out and just to see this play out again and shows this dynamic at work how is it that one of the strongest evangelical movements in the United States that has been so faithful in preaching the word and adherence to the standards of scripture gets so far off on something like covering up sexual abuse within their own ranks. Yeah, and my main concern is that we're going to think that there's something wrong with Christianity because of this. This has perhaps more potential to do harm than all of the Catholic scandals because now it's generalized out to Christianity. Before we could say, yeah, Catholicism, we know that they're It's just the Catholics. They've been doing this since the Middle Ages. But someone from the outside looking in is going to say, what's the common denominator between these denominations, right? Between Catholicism and and the Baptist Church. And if I were a skeptic, I would say it's Christianity. It's because it's patriarchal, maybe. I would say it's a patriarchal religion, and therefore there, and it is hierarchical, and that there is abuse of authority built into Christianity. That there's this command to submit, and that there's this uncritical approach to authority and to leadership, and it just lends itself to these abusive scenarios. And that's what I think a skeptic would say has caused this. And I would say that the only way this would not happen would be if 
people would obey the gospel and believe the gospel. The reason I say that is because the uh, Boy Scouts of America have had similar scandals, and they're not predicated on a Christian worldview, and yet you do have some of the same factors. You do have an institutional hierarchy. You do have lines of authority. You have uh, an ostensible purpose, a good work that you believe in and that you're doing. And so it's similar, but it's certainly not, Boy Scouts is not based on Christian principles. And, and I think that there are a lot of other organizations uh, that have similar abuses going on, which don't have within them the means for those abuses to ever be discovered or corrected. So, the, so there's some connection between institutions like the Southern Baptist Convention, Boy Scouts of America, other types of institutions like that. How, how come that ends up taking more control over what happens within its ranks than supposedly the actual values of the gospel? Right. Why, it, why does that take precedence? It, well, it's the man and the machine dichotomy that the machine is doing such good that if it chews up a few people along the way, then that's just the cost to doing business. And not that I, I don't know if anybody would articulate it that way, but it seems that if you look at pretty much any scandal that's happened, there's always this thought that we have to maintain um, our reputation as an institution. We have to maintain the support of our members or else all of the good things that we're accomplishing will come to a halt. And so these people's suffering is just a sacrifice that has to be made. Yeah, and I, I definitely think in the case of the SBC, they wouldn't put it that way, but I, I was reading you know, some of the feedback from Russell Moore, who was in, in the leadership ranks at the SBC up until probably last fall. He left being very concerned and seeing these things start to emerge. He left that group and was now with this report, feeding back on this and, and talking about the, the ways that leadership within that institution, really most institutions operate. And it was this, look, we, we've got to maintain our witness. Hey. We're here representing Jesus in our churches, and there's lots of good people out there. Let's yeah. not sully their names. By bringing up some of these bad situations, let's let's keep a good front on for the sake of all these other good things we have going. We have missionaries all over the world, and, right. and the SBC has a lot of missionaries doing amazing, helpful, great things all over the world. If we start talking about this bad stuff and putting it all out there, then you know people aren't going to support these missionaries, and that's going to pull them off of the field, and people are going to go to hell. And, and so it, it was all that same kind of dynamic of we've got to keep our reputation, at least externally, what people see. We have to keep it intact and squeaky clean, even if inside the tomb is full of dead, dry bone. Right. And, and I think we see this dichotomy and this just instance, and I may have, I've probably mentioned it recently, but when Jesus in Matthew 16, he tells his disciples, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested and then I'll eventually I'll be executed. And Peter, who is obviously the most zealous of Jesus' disciples, his inner circle, takes him aside, rebukes him. Don't say this, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because he hears in Peter the voice of Satan. And I think that what we find is that Satan doesn't come and say, ooh, let's do some bad stuff. It'll be fun. Satan says, far be it from you. This is too important. 
you have potential, you are doing good in the world, you are the solution to our problems, and how could you be taken off of the field? You are far too important. And if we look at Jesus' ministry, okay, what did he build? What did he write? What did he found, institute, develop? The answer to all those is the same, right? Zero. He died in his early 30s as a criminal and left nothing tangible behind. That's who we're following. By most indications, Jesus would look like a big failure. If the Holy Spirit hadn't come on Pentecost, it would have been over right there. He would have just been probably not even a blip in history. And yet, something did change. Something did happen. I think the problem is that we become so sold out to our own value what we're accomplishing in scripture the only place i can think of where somebody asks the question what are we accomplishing is the pharisees (laughs) in john 11 when jesus raises lazarus and the pharisees get together and they say what are we accomplishing at this rate he's going to fill this area with his teaching and then the romans are going to come and what are they going to do they're going to take away our place and our nation We must defend our religious institution at all costs. And if that means executing the Son of God, we will do it. If we get together in a boardroom and we ask, what are we accomplishing? And we start falling in love with our own creation, no matter how good we say it is. Is that like Jesus or is that like the Pharisees? Yeah. And this this hits close to home because we jokingly call this podcast, Three Failed Pastors, as its tagline. But I think we've all personally lived through some part of this in the sense yeah. that in our enthusiasm and zeal and really just, you know, good intentions in a way that that the three of us, even though Ken's not here, we jumped into church ministry and wanting to serve the Lord and to do good and all of these things, but then found ourselves getting wrapped up in these same dynamics of, I want to be successful and I want to do a good job. And I want this all to have tangible results and accomplish something. And I think each one of us in our own way found ourselves in this place of just <laughs> really not only not being as successful as we thought we needed to be in those things, but realizing how hollow that kind of success really is. Absolutely. Yeah. You just turn around and you realize that I don't think Jesus is here. Yeah, exactly. I was doing this because I really wanted to know more of Jesus. But now that I've gotten here, it feels like he's somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. It's easy to start chasing your own ego in his name. At least it was for me. And to discover that I'm really capable of horrible acts in the name of doing ministry, if need be. And it's because that there almost gets to be this sense of do or die, produce or just disappear into insignificance. And that can become such a dangerous thing. And it is what the gospel refutes. The Christian movement is not alone in its tendency to be swayed by what I would call a satanic motive of performance, production, accomplishment. And if you look at, say, Stalinist Russia and Stalin's famous quote, if you're going to make an omelet, you're going to have to break some eggs. And that wording, probably not used in many other settings, it does 
illustrate the thinking that is capable of covering up sexual abuse. And it all comes from, ironically, the devil. (laughs) And he can go to church. If he can tempt Jesus, he can go to church. When he was tempting Jesus, what did he tempt him with? Here are all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give them to you if you fall down and worship me. What's the potential there? To be world king, world ruler? Uh, Could you bring justice to the world? Sure you could, but would you? No. Because the price of receiving that kind of power is is your soul. And I think we have to get this, that the gospel calls us to lay down our aspirations toward power, even if we think we're going to use it for good. And Lord of the Rings, (laughs) it has to come to mind, but, but how many... Characters along the way think, if I just had that ring, I can do good with it. Right? If we but, could but use the ring. And Gandalf is like, look, there's just one Lord of the Ring. And when we grasp at that power, it, we will lose ourselves every time. We have to understand that. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, comes and he relinquishes it. Paul, I think, intentionally casts Jesus as the antithesis of Adam. In Adam, what is a reach? He reached and took the fruit. In Jesus is a release. Can't mention the scripture last week in Philippians 2. Jesus, who, though in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so there is this self-emptying that must accompany the gospel. Kenosis. But the promise is that Jesus says that if you will abide in me, you will bear fruit, and that fruit will last. And that's the difference between Jesus, who accomplished nothing from a human perspective, and yet we're still talking about today, and somebody like, let's say, Ananias, Caiaphas, who become the villains of history, just 30 years later, 35 years later, the Romans came and took away their place in their nation. They lost it anyways. Lost it anyway. And so it's such a futile thing. And for all of the attempts that the Baptists made to rescue their reputation, their organization, their institution, their works, I'm afraid that all of that is going to be now. Hot. Yeah, and I... We bring up that news about the SBC only because it's been so prominent, not because we have a bone to pick against the SBC or the Baptists in general, because they have done a lot. I've received a lot of blessing from the Baptist organization and the people that have been a part of that. So we recognize that God does work in our institutions, often despite them and often despite Maybe our our worst inclinations, but that is not an excuse for us to build our own little kingdoms or to build our own institutions and to grasp at power. In our gospel reading in the common lectionary this week was the story where John the Baptist disciples come to him and they're getting panicked because Jesus is getting more popular and more people are going over to see Jesus now and get baptized and to come over to John. So they come to John the Baptist, and they're like, everyone's going to this Jesus, and they're getting baptized with him now. we got to do something. And John the Baptist says, hey, he must increase, and I must decrease. And I think that is a good word <laughs> for yeah. all of us that would take on whatever we think ministry is. If we're going to go down that way, there's a sense that Jesus must continue to increase in we, our ego, our 
agendas, our ambitions has to continue to decrease. Yeah. And we call this Faith Recovery Podcast. And I think that one of the things that we have to recover the faith from is the misdeeds of professing Christians. And so whether it's me or the head of the executive committee at the Southern Baptist Church or the Pope or who, that we have to understand, I, I think to associate Christianity with these people is to make the very mistake that they've made. That they associated the future and the destiny of Christianity with their own existence and their activity. And so in doing so, they made a grievous error. But to blame Jesus for what they've done is to make the exact same error, but on the other side. And is to give us no refuge from this inclination that led them to where they are. The gospel is the answer. The gospel allows us to our fight for power, our grasping after power. Nothing else allows us to do that. If there weren't the hope of the resurrection, then we'd better get the power. I'm, I'm going to have it, and you will not. And it, yet, if we understand that, hey, this life isn't all there is, and that God is faithful, and that Christ came from the dead, that we can submit, we can relinquish this power, we can continue to be faithful regardless of the consequences. And that gives us the, the resources, I think, to take another tack. And the reason some of this has come to light in these churches, in these organizations, is because the gospel is still there to finally shine the light on it. Whereas I think in other organizations, these things are probably continuing to happen, but there's not the means within those organizations to expose their misdeeds. Mm-hmm. The gospel self-corrects. It corrects the church. It may be after a, a time, but it does. Yeah, and uh, I, as we read, you know, into the, the story about the SBC, in spite of maybe many leaders trying to obfuscate and cover up, there were good people that were in there poking their finger and saying, we we got to look into this. The groups of people that went in and basically forced this third party to come in and investigate. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, that that is because there is something there um, within those people that says, hey, no, that we have to follow a higher calling. And that needs to become the dominant motive in how we live out Christianity. There needs to be submission, yes, but there never needs to be grandstanding, bandwagoning. We don't need to come under the sway of somebody because they're in authority, they're charismatic, they're influential. We don't need to move in lockstep with the people who are our peers, the people that we respect. I, I think that the best defense that anybody has against participating in some sort of horrific acts is the gospel and its call to freedom. And we talked about this, that in Galatians 5, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So if I do something, if I do a good thing because all of my friends are doing it, does that make me good? No. If those exact same people decide to turn and do something bad... My motive remains the same. How an outsider might view my actions would be different. But from the inside, I'm the exact same person. And, and, and same if I am compelled to do good. Say I'm going to be fined or taxed if I don't recycle. Does that make me an environmentalist? And so I have to be free to be good. Are you moral. saying that the law can really only produce 
at best conformity. Yeah, it counts on self-interest. And yet, would we say somebody who is driven entirely by self-interest is a good person? Man, I've never seen somebody so self-interested as that guy. He's great. We're just not going to do that. And yet, if if our gospel came with this freedom requirement, like anytime somebody suggested that we exert social pressure on someone, anytime anybody even implied that they can make a decision by fiat because of their position that we would all just recoil in shock and horror. But instead, that's how we get things done. We have to have someone in charge. So right. even, even though we don't really understand why, we're, we're going to do it because they're in charge. Yeah. And then, then maybe that makes sense from some corporate kind <laughs> of <laughs> logistics. Right. But. It makes sense only if you see that the work belongs to the group. But the work belongs to the individuals. And what does Paul say? That he ascended on high, he gave gifts and apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, you know, shepherds, teachers. And that he did that for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Notice that there's not some sort of an administrative head and that we're going to cast vision and we're going to recruit volunteers and we're going to raise uh, funds that perhaps those are okay things, but... Within that process, we lose this individual call to Christ-likeness because anybody can give 20 extra dollars. Anybody can set aside an hour a week to something. But we're being called to become, each as individuals, a manifestation of the Son of God and to operate in community with individuals who are individually responding in faith to the Son of God. So it's when we begin to think we can get more done if we organize all of these people and point them all in the same direction. But man, that begins to put a lot of godlike power in the hands of human beings who are then ready to preserve it at all costs. And we're back to scandal. And, and I think so much of that starts out with good intentions look we've got a big group of people let's get organized put somebody in charge okay we need to fund this stuff let's so let's put together an account in the name of this entity but the more we do that the more we create this entity that has a life of its own we have to be skeptical of it you can see fundraising you can see administrating happening in the new testament but it was generally ad hoc it was just in the moment it wasn't supposed to be from now on it certainly wasn't supposed to accomplish the evangelizing of the world god seems to be okay to do that the holy spirit seemed to function pretty well as a mobilizer in acts 13. so uh, we have to be really careful we have to be really slow to do these sorts of administrative enterprises they all have to have kind of their own demise in view from the beginning and we have to be ready for them to die and realize that's not the essence of what we're doing that the essence is developing the individuals releasing them to make a difference to be the aroma of christ in their respective spheres of influence that's where the real work is going to happen and guess what everybody gets to be free then nobody has to join a lockstep and Nobody's responsible for 
how productive somebody else is. I think the reason that we can't recognize the potential evil in good intentions is because we aren't versed enough in the gospel. Yeah. So we need to internalize this gospel message, not just become experts in scripture necessarily, but internalize this gospel message, make it a part of our individual life, but then also put that at the forefront of our community. We need to hold each other accountable for yeah. it. When we see somebody who starts to exert social pressure on others to get them to conform or to comply that person needs to be taken aside as though we found them with a room full of hookers. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we're moralists in this country and finding somebody with a room full of hookers is a scandal. Finding somebody who is pressuring others to do good things is laudable and it is antithetical to the gospel. It is more dangerous, I think, than the other. And so we have to, on the basis of the gospel, hold each other accountable and say, look, you are encroaching on the freedom of God's own people, his children, and he will not cotton to that. He will not take it lightly, and you need to repent today. Amen. We have a hard stop at 730. That's right. Boom. That's it. Next time. Bye-bye.